We are in the towards the end. We're finishing up here, the, the end of the study on the book of Mark, which to me has just been dynamic and fascinating. And um, we, our time's running a little short today, so we're just going to jump into Mark chapter 12. If you have your Bibles or your phones and you want to open up to Mark 12, um, that will be great. Uh, last week, Laurie Landry, pastor of spiritual formation and keeper of keys, uh, did an incredible job of walking us through uh, um, uh, Mark chapter 11, which talks about Jesus and the temple and what was happening there and the cursing of the fig tree. And it, it, it's really great because our context for our, our passage today is that uh, this is kind of in the middle of Mark 12, uh, and Jesus has had three uh, continued conversations in the temple courts. So inside the worship hall, the worship gathered space of God's people. And he's going to have three conversations with different various groups of people. The Pharisees are going to show up in the story. The Herodians are going to show up in the story. And the Sadducees are going to show up in the story. And I've got lots of notes on all three of who these groups are. And in this one, it says one of the teachers of the law. We're not sure which group he came from, but he could be a Sadducee, but he's probably a Pharisee. That's um, a lot of work by scholars to help us unpack that. Pharisees were uh, Jewish religious leaders. They cared a lot about the Old Testament. They cared a lot about their scripture. They believed that God's word was true, but they also believed in oral tradition. They also believed in tradition that would evolve from uh, the giving of the 10 laws from Moses. And it got to a point that oral tradition was becoming equal with God's laws. And by the time of Jesus, there are 613 laws to be known, observed, and ranked from the most important to the least important. And how you ranked 613 laws would tell us everything we needed to know about you and your theology. They were common, middle-class business owners. Um, they, um, they, they had seats of power and authority, and the common people loved them compared to the others. But the Pharisees became really comfortable under Roman rule because they had control of the masses. And so Rome would give to these leaders a little bit more to keep the peace. And so there was some resentment. And then there's the Herodians. They believed uh, that the line of the Jewish king should come from King Herod. The first Herod ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD, the time of Jesus. And they believed that the line should stem from King Herod, not King David. And they had a different set of beliefs with a different outcome. They believed that a relationship with Rome would give them peace. And so they started kind of buying in to reign and rule alongside Rome. Then you have the Sadducees. These are the aristocrats, the wealthy, the upper class. They were the priests and the chief priests. They had most of the seats and the uh, 70 seats on the San Sanhedrin, this ruling body. But they didn't have the love of the people. They weren't like them. They were arrogant. They were overeducated. And they used that against their people. They suppressed them with their intellect and their knowledge. They believed in the law of Moses, but they had a little bit more liberal view of Scripture and the exact nature of it. And Jesus confronts them in a previous passage about the, what happens at the resurrection. He calls them out. But in this story, there's these encounters where people keep showing up to debate Jesus. They, wanna, they, wanna, they want to theologically and intellectually debate with him, to trap him, to, to get him to make a, a, a verbal or an active mistake that would give them the right as the authority 
to end his life. And so when we pick up the story, that's where we're at. And so let's just read it and we'll make a few comments and we'll continue. It says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now, again, we don't know. It's probably one of the Pharisees, but it could be a Sadducee. And it says, one of the teachers of the law came and he heard them debating. Now, what's interesting about this is that somewhere along the line, like Jesus has a debate and it doesn't go well for the people. It goes well for Jesus and the crowds, they start cheering kind of this movement. And then he goes to the next and he goes to the next and goes to the next. And so there's this idea that they're like, what else could we challenge him on and who should we send? And so they all get together and like, should we send him? No, he's, he's to this or he's to this or he's to this or he's not enough this, but let's send this guy. Let's send Joe because he's um, thoughtful and kind and, 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 um, and respected and uh, he's not argumentative and, but let's go do one more debate with him because we've asked him about these certain things but now let's get him let's get him to tell us of the 613 laws which is most important because what the answer will be will determine who he is you see they don't know who Jesus is he didn't study in their schools. He didn't sit at the feet of a rabbi. He wasn't processed from childhood through teenage, through young adult. At 30, he showed up and said, I am, and started deconstructing and reconstructing the entire faith of the Jews. They don't know him, and they don't really know what he believes. Is he conservative or is he liberal? Is he progressive or is he, um, uh, or does he have too much um, trust in the state? Does he not trust the state? Is he, um, is, is he a king? Is he, gonna, is he got power? Is he going to take over? Is he going to destroy us? What's, who is this guy? But none of them liked him. He didn't fit into any of their stories, and they all wanted him dead. So they send Joe, and Joe comes, and he hears them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, he then asked him, okay, of all of the commandments, which one is most important? The word for most important here is the word first in Greek, protos. Which one's first? Not only did the Greeks have a, a, an, or, or the, uh, the, the Jews had an order of the 613 laws, they weighed them heavy and light. And that was like the, the ramifications or how much you needed to observe them. So tell us which one is most important. Now, if he was conservative he would go back to the Ten Commandments and he would say something to the, to the effect of if he chose one of the ten, let's say he chose uh, um, uh, uh, do not uh, commit adultery or honor your mother and father. Both of those laws in the Ten Commandments um, were, were attracted to those that were really, really conservative about their faith and they're conservative about their interpretation of the law because honoring your father and mother made sure that, um, that, that you know, there's God and there's mom and dad and there's you and there's an order and you behave and you honor them and kind of slippery slope turns into moralism, but that's what they held fast to. If he would have chosen one of those two, they would have said, oh, you're on this camp. But if he chose another one, if he would have chosen um, uh, do not bear false witness, um, that means more than don't lie. It means if you enter a court system, don't lie in the courts and reduce the power and the value of the courts. If you chose another one of those laws, um, like don't covet your neighbor stuff, um, you're, it's because you're looking for equity in the person next to you. Well, then they would say you're more liberal. And they would say that's the camp that you're in and this is the slippery slope of that. So we ask the question, and, and the crowd, and the person asking the question is essentially saying, you're going to pick one of the Ten Commandments. 
And Jesus says, the first, the protos, the first answer is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So he ranks them one and two, but says, in Matthew, it says the entire law hangs on these two. Everything hangs from it like a trellis. You can't have the other 611 laws unless the order is love God and love people. That's it. And he gives the answer. But what's striking here is neither of these are in the Ten Commandments. Neither of these are in the Ten Commandments. The first one comes from uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, and it says this. This is a a prayer. It's called the Shema. It's prayed um, daily, still even to this day. It's prayed in the courts. It's prayed when people wake up um, um, and before they go to bed. Many Jewish uh, brothers and sisters continue to pray the Shema, and it's called the Shema because the first word here in Hebrew is Shema. But it says this, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is where the birth of monotheism in the world. There is a God and he is one. And this God is to be loved with all your guts. Heart, mind, soul, breath, emotions, all of it. There is one God. He is our God and he is to be loved. Now, if you look, I took a little screenshot of the, of the Hebrew here so we can show up the Shema. Uh, that's the word on the right and that it means to hear or understand or to listen or to obey. And so there's this invitation to hear that God is one, he's ours, and he's to be loved. That is, that is the number one first protos law of all of them. And then he reads from Leviticus 19, and he says, uh, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone amongst your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he takes the second one, and it's debatable whether or not Jesus created this two-law system as the top or somebody else did at the time. Um, it, it is, it, some believe that this is the first time these have been put together, and others say there's pieces of it that were floating in teaching circles at the time. But Jesus declares these two things and puts them together and says, love God and love people. Now, the irony of the Ten Commandments is this. If we look at the Ten Commandments, The first four say, don't have any other gods. Don't create false idol gods. Don't take God's name in vain. And remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All of those are about the love of God. And the second six are honor mom and dad. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet. Those are all about loving your neighbor. So instead of picking one of the Ten Commandments, he picked them all. They wanted one, and they wanted one that they ordered. They wanted one that they ranked heavy to light. And Jesus is like, you guys don't understand the question. You don't understand the question. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with everything that you have. And as you work that out in real life, turn to your neighbor and give them the exact same. Now, it's interesting, if we go back to the passage, it says, love God and love your neighbor. Now, there are three Greek words for love. If you've been in church at any point in your life, you've heard this a thousand times. There's agape, there's eros, and there's philo. Agape is this divine-like covenant um, totality love that is all about the choice and the will to choose righteousness. Eros is erotic love. Philo is brotherly love. 
the love that we have for our brother. So when it says, love your God with all your heart, love in that sentence, that verse is agape. That makes sense. Love God in totality, but make a willful choice to do it. But the second one, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I expected that love to be philo. And it's not. It's agape. God is saying, you need to love God first and primary with everything that you have. And then you need to turn to your neighbor and love them the same way. You see, with philo love, I can call you my brother or my sister, um, and I can, uh, I, can, I can love you in certain ways. But I, if, if it's not an agape kind of love, I will, I will uh, reduce and deduce you down to something and give you less than you actually deserve. And yet in my mind, I can say, look, I'm being equitable. Uh, they need a shirt, fine, I'll give them one, but I'm going to give them the one at the bottom of the drawer that has all the holes in it. You know at school when you collect like cans for can drives, it's like if you're like, (laughs) all of us are the same, you open up the pantry door and you go to the stuff in the back that you haven't eaten in nine years, and you're like, these are the cans that I'll give away. That's kind of what Philo Love does. It says, I'll give to you, but I'm not giving you everything. I'll show niceness, but will I show mercy? And Jesus says, you want to know what all of this is about? Love the Lord with everything that you have. And as you work that out, turn to your neighbor. And who's my neighbor? Well, Luke 10 says it's your enemy and your family member and your coworker and your classmate and the person across the street, and the person around the world. It is your enemy. Jesus' story of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the hero of the story that saves the day is not a fellow Jew who they would have thought that was their neighbor. And Jesus expands it and says, actually, no. It's not even someone that lives in the next country. It's the most hated person in our political worldview. You're to love them with an agape love that gives everything away. You want to know what all of this is about? You want to know what all of this is about? The law is rooted in love. And there is an order. And the order is start with God and then move to your, the person sitting next to you. That's the order. Don't get it backwards. Start with God and then move to the person sitting next to you. And God is saying, the law cannot save you. But when the kindness and love of our Savior appears, mercy, grace, the renewal, washing, the forever world. You become heirs to the kingdom of God. All right, let's finish the passage. Well said, the, teachers, the, the teacher replies. Well done. Like, oh my gosh, I think you got it. That was really good. And of course, all of his other pharisaical friends in the corner, they're like, why did we send Joe? He's so soft, you know? Like, we should have sent Chuck. He's mean, you know? Like, he would have gone after him. But they probably sent somebody that was probably older, a little bit more stable, a little bit more calm, a little wiser. And yet this old dog learns a new trick. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is even more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The word uh, more important uh, is sometimes it feels like we can order them again, but it's actually the word to exceed, meaning to love God and love neighbors exceeds everything else exceeds everything else. They're good. This is great. They're secondary. This is primary. He doesn't say stop 
giving sacrificially. He says, understand that sacrificial giving only makes sense if you love God and love people. For God so loved the world that he gave. So if you're going to sacrificially give to the Lord and to your neighbor, you have to agape that love gift. You have to give it away with everything that you have. So don't stop being sacrificial. But recognize that the love of God and the love of neighbor exceeds that. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The crowd was stunned and amazed by this response. One, because he blew up this political system that was all false. All of these religious political organizations that were gathered were trying to, through the name of God and scripture, determine um, who, the, who the audience ought to be and how they ought to see God through their geopolitical lens. And you know what he was saying? None of it works. I don't care if you're conservative or liberal. It can't save you is what Jesus said. It's a, it's a slippery slope to fallacy. It's idolatry. Stop. Stop believing that your political interpretation is going to save you. Love God and love people. If you can do that, the world will change. That's it. Stop worrying about these other things. These exceed them. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I've been thinking about this. It seems like an odd thing to say. Like there's a line and he's just outside it, so he's not in the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God is expanding on earth. It is here. It is it. But I think two things that we should walk away from, and I'll invite the band up now so we can start transitioning. But I think Jesus says this last line, you're not far from the kingdom of God to tell us two things. One, you're always on a journey. I don't care if this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus or the 4,958th time. I don't care if you're as um, young as uh, Charlie that was up here um, or as aged as, I shouldn't do that, um, Bob. (laughs) Bob's not here, so we can pick on Bob. Everybody has the chance to be transformed. As you age, there feels like there's a lot less aha moments in our life. But Jesus is saying, I don't care if you're five or 85. There is room for your being to be transformed by the love of God. Be transformed. Don't stop transforming or walking that holiness path. Be transformed. Constantly seek, what does it mean to be more like Christ? And if I can learn to love God just, just in, in, in a different kind of way today, that's going to radically change how I love my coworker, my classmate, my neighbor, my spouse, my kids. Jesus is inviting us into that. And the second thing is this. Why does he say you're not far from the kingdom of God? It's almost like if, if I'd love to see this play out um, it, where he kind of looks at him and just says, hey, just pay attention. I only got one more week of this stuff, but at the end of the week, you're going to totally understand what I'm talking about. You're not far from the kingdom of God because Jesus is saying, I am the kingdom of God and I love you so much that I'm going to climb up on top of a cross and I'm going to die for you. I love you so much that I'm going to give to you sacrificially. Because of the love that I have for my father, I'm going to equalize that love for you and I'm going to give you everything we got. Not what you deserve, but everything that we have. That is what he is talking about. He's saying, just pay attention. Something radical is going to happen at the end of the week. I am going to show you and demonstrate to you what it means to love. We don't deserve it. Those people did not deserve it. And yet he demonstrated his love because when the kindness and mercy of God shows up, he saves and he gives.
I think the challenge for us as a community in this world, and listen, I talked a lot about conservative and liberal and political, and it's no joke. It was the same issue 2,000 years ago, and it's the same issue today. But the only thing that's going to save us in this world is the love of God. Don't neglect that. That's it. Nothing else matters. It exceeds all of those other things. Amen?